You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us now at patreon.com slash mission log for exclusive early access, the Mission Log Discord, and more. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 399, One Little Ship. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take both a macro and a microscopic look at each and every episode of Star Trek to see if their morals, meanings, and messages scale in size over the test of time. This week, One Little Ship, the episode where Dr. Shrinker captures the crew oh no, the, uh, hey sit no norm no 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 it's it, it's not that one i'm sorry oh um okay the one where the crew of the enterprise try and decode the word keratin from a strange signal uh, is it, no, no, hey, no, no no it's not not that one either well geez john you'll have to make me feel small about it i mean well, oh, oh, hold on a second here it is i got it i got it the one where almost every other scene contains a double entendre I, okay, uh, close, but no Freudian cigar. I tell you what, why don't you do the thing so we can get on to the other thing? All right, well, that's very big of you. So Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow us and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323 323- Five two two five six four one. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here is John, Mr. Big, John Champion, with this week's <laughs> trivia. Well, thank you, Norman. Uh, today's episode, One Little Ship, was written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. And you remember those guys, right? Weddle is the Sam Peckinpah fan who was friends with Iris Stephen Bear. And Weddle and Thompson have been working together, and they came in at the same time on Rules of Engagement back in Season 4 of DS9. Well, they get the total credit here, but it wasn't actually their pitch. The premise should actually have been credited to Rene Echeverria, who had the idea of a tiny shuttle way back when he was writing spec scripts for TNG. That didn't sell, but the offspring did, and that got him a job on the show. And then he pitched it again, and nobody was buying. Then he went over to DS9, and the tiny shuttle story got rejected by Michael Piller and by Ira, until it didn't. So it was completely rewritten, and here is where we land in the middle of Season 6. The episode was directed by Alan Croker, and we're in the middle of Alan's run as a director on uh, DS9. Uh, the last episode of his that we discussed was Sacrifice of Angels, and we've got six more to go before the jump to Alan's run on Voyager. Don't forget, he's the finale king when it comes to seasons and series, so a good deal of his work to discuss coming up. And uh, this episode was actually shot before episode 13 of the season. You remember last week's Far Beyond the Stars, but there was a lengthy post-production period on this one, so the airing order was changed. Uh, this episode has an Emmy Award nomination for Outstanding Visual Effects. Not hard to see why here uh, when you've got, well, you got people like Dan Curry and Gary Hutzel who are well-deserving of the honor, along with the CG team headed by David Lombardi and compositing by David Nethercutt. Those are only just a small handful of names on a crew of people who put in a lot of work on this episode with the majority of scenes having some sort of effects shot. And yes, all of this is intended as 
homage to the shrinking person tropes in science fiction. Fantastic Voyage was a hit movie in 1966, directed by Robert Fleischer. There's also Land of the Giants, which ran on uh, for two seasons, starting in 1968. Not to mention all the incredible shrinking and honey, I shrunk, and any number of other stories that play with scale. <clears throat> Ant-Man. <clears throat> so let's talk about guest stars. We have a gem hadar named Kurakatan, bred in the Alpha Quadrant. He's played by Scott Thompson Baker. Interesting story about Scott. He was studying acting in college and doing quite well and performing in a number of theatrical productions. He applied for the show Star Search and he won. He made it 13 straight weeks, collected a $100,000 prize, and then found himself a regular on General Hospital. Many other roles and guest spots followed. This is his only track appearance. And coming in all the way from the Gamma Quadrant, we have a gem Hadar named Ixtanarax, played by Fritz Sperberg. He has worked pretty regularly in TV since the early 80s and even showed up in The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones. This is the first of his Star Trek appearances. He'll be back for a role in an episode of Voyager, and he lends his voice to a video game, Star Trek Klingon Academy. Brand new Vorta for us. Leland Crook plays Gelnon, uh, also a veteran of TV roles since the 80s. Leland has shown up in recurring roles on Key West, on Charmed, and more recently on Parenthood. He will have one more Trek appearance on Enterprise. <laughs> We now take you to the best little runabout in the Alpha Quadrant. Prologue. Taking a much-needed break from the months of frontlining the war against the Dominion, Captain Sisko remarks on how welcome is the diversion for he and his crew to take the USS Defiant on an exploratory mission to investigate a rare subspace compression phenomenon. Based on data from unmanned probes, it appears that this anomaly has the ability to reduce the scale and size of matter, which could lead to a breakthrough in transwarp corridor development. At least that's how seriously Commander Worf sees the phenomenon's potential. Major Kira, however, is unable to contain her composure as she finds something incredibly funny about this whole mission. Worf, however, is ready to regale Sisko and the bridge crew with a poem dedicated to his beloved Dax and this momentous occasion as she is piloting the Rubicon along with Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien on board while tethered to the Defiant via tractor beam. However, as soon as the mission begins and just as the Rubicon begins to shrink under the effect of the anomaly, the Defiant is rocked with weapons fire and several bridge crewmen suffer major injuries as the surprise attack caught them unawares. Before Captain Sisko can access the damage, Nog informs him that the Rubicon is no longer tethered to the tractor beam. And to make matters all the worse, Major Kara is knocked unconscious by an exploding navigation panel, just as an entire cadre of Jem'Hadar beam onto a defenseless defiant bridge and order Sisko to surrender or be killed. Act 1. On the Rubicon, the good news. Dax, Dr. Bashir, and Chief O'Brien are still alive, albeit a little battered and bruised. The bad news, all of the Rubicon's external sensors, comm systems, and blast shutters are non-functional, making them blind to what happened to the Defiant. Speaking of which, Kudakatan, the Jem'Hadar first, arrives on the bridge and surveys what he believes was a successful assault on Sisko's ship. The first declares victory to garner the favor of his men and his Vorta, even though his second outwardly disagrees. Ixtanarax is an older Gamma Quadrant veteran of the Jem'Hadar of 20 years and his first reminds him of that very fact by addressing the second with a tone to remind Ixtanarax of his inferiority to the new breed of Alpha Quadrant-born Jem'Hadar. The first reports of his victory to Gelnon, the Vorta in charge of this Jem'Hadar cadre, who clearly senses the tension and disdain from the second, who is less than complimentary of the Alphas. But true to the Jem'Hadar code, Ixtanarax will obey his first because obedience brings victory and victory is life. Meanwhile, in the Defiance mess hall, 
Cisco, Kira, Worf, and Nog focus on how they can stall their invaders from achieving warp speed, which would allow the Gem Hadar to return to the Dominion-occupied space, with prisoners and the Defiant in tow. Time is of the essence to plan an escape as Extanorax appears to bring Cisco to meet with the first. Back on the Rubicon, the Chief works his miracles and restores power to the shutters, establishing visuals, well, sort of, with what appears to be a giant metallic wall in the middle of open space, Dr. Bashir cranes his neck around trying to make sense of a very large black circle, bewildering him as he realizes that it is one of the periods that separates three large letters, specifically the U, S, and S, as seen on the Defiance main hull. The scale is correct, and the reality is that the Rubicon never returned to normal size after being thrown out of the anomaly. Poor Chief O'Brien. Act 2. Because they never exited the anomaly as how they entered, the Rubicon and her crew were unable to organically reverse the compression process. Realizing that they are about one centimeter tall, Dax, Bashir, and O'Brien understand that they have a huge problem on their hands, which requires no small amount of risk and bravery on their part. Step one, make contact with a defiant. Step two, how? Well, Thanks to O'Brien's bag of tricks, i.e. his arcane knowledge of vents and openings on the Defiant, he recommends Dax to pilot the Rubicon through the aft plasma vent and straight into, well, the chief is working on it. Back on the Defiant's bridge, Cisco meets with Kudak Etan, who demands to have the warp drive repaired, and Cisco sees this as the opening to try and retake the ship. Cisco agrees to fix the warp drive, but only with the aid of his own people. Extanorax warns his first that Cisco is buying time to regroup and retake his ship, but Kudak Etan will hear nothing from his second and has Cisco escorted to engineering. In the turbo lift, Extanorax warns Cisco to just stop whatever he's planning, to which Cisco tries to get into the second's head by pressing the issue between Extanorax and Kudak Etan, or more specifically, the Gamma Gem Hadar's disdain towards the inexperienced and prideful alpha breeds. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Kudak Etan informs the Vorta Gelnan that the impulse engines have been restored. The first orders his navigator to engage the impulse engines and set course for the nearest Dominion outpost. As the miniaturized Rubicon navigates its way through the mass of impulse drive conduits, they begin to glow as the Chief and Dax realize that the impulse engines are being brought online. Act 3. With only seconds to spare, and with the flames of ignited plasma engulfing the Rubicon, Dax rams the nearest and seemingly massive inspection hatch and bursts through what in reality is a panel no larger than a shoebox. Now operating in scale to the full-sized environment of the Defiance engine room, Dax pilots the Rubicon, trying to stay out of sight and from underfoot of the Jem'Hadar guards who are focused on keeping Sisko, Nog, Worf, and Kira on task to repair the warp drive. With visual sensors restored and perched with a Tarkalian hawk's eye view of the situation, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir figure out that Cisco is trying to regain control of the ship by using the auxiliary control console in engineering as Nog tries to hack the bridge security codes. Kira continues the ruse of trying to actually repair the warp core as Worf reroutes the system controls to delay the increasingly fast-learning Jem'Hadar engineers. Chief O'Brien has every confidence that Nog is smart enough to hack the codes, but it will take too long unless they can help him by overriding the controls on the bridge itself, which is no small feat. They just need someone to walk through the door so they can fly through and escape into the corridor. Just then, Kudak Etan enters and chastises Ixtana Rocks for his incompetence in obstructing the warp drive's repairs, as Cisco eggs on the first, fanning the flames between the Gamma and the Alpha Gem Hadar. After ordering the second to stay out of the way, Dax sees her opportunity and pilots the Rubicon ever so closely to the first as he walks out of the engine room. Impressed, Bashir compliments Dax on her piloting skills as she smirks and coyly warns him that he'll love what she's going to do next. Act 4. Walking back and forth and using hushed tones, Sisko checks in on his fellow saboteurs. Nog is having little to no luck accessing the command codes from the bridge, but isn't beaten yet. Sisko's backup plan to destroy the ship if it comes to that. Kira is running out of maneuvering room as her Jem'Hadar engineering assistant has already memorized all of the routines that she's taught him. And if all else fails, 
Cisco will have Worf plant a computer virus to detonate the warp core if the Defiant reaches warp one. After observing the first and another Alpha Gem Hadar commiserating outside the bridge, Dax delicately nudges the door controls and flies the Rubicon inside and undetected. However, the chief informs him that in order for Nog to gain access to the bridge command codes, the chief has to reroute the encryption subprocessors manually and leave the runabout to do it. Bashir clarifies that there is a little problem with that. Outside of the miniaturized environment of the Rubicon, the oxygen molecules would be too large for the chief to absorb into his bloodstream, and he would suffocate. Teching the tech, Dax believes that she can stabilize an oxygen field inside the airtight processor housing for about 20 minutes, long enough for the chief to do his work, but with one small caveat. If he runs the risk of passing out because of the thin air, then Bashir is going with him. Upon beaming inside the subprocessor housing, the chief takes one long look around and upward, and upon seeing how foreign everything looks now from his miniaturized vantage point, he suddenly realizes that the job might take a little longer than he thought. Act 5. Unable to see the isolinear forest from the optronic trees, both the chief and Dr. Bashir are overwhelmed by their mind-altering size and perspective of what the chief should know like the back of his miniaturized hand. But that is the problem, and the hypoxia that both he and Julian are suffering are making their task nearly impossible to focus on. But Julian calms the chief and has him focus on what he knows rather than what he sees. And with that mindset, they manage to navigate through the subprocessor labyrinth and reprogram the connections just in the nog of time as Nog tries one more attempt at cracking the bridge codes and succeeds. However, out of the frying pan and into the firing line as Kudak Atan appears in engineering, as Ixtanarex declares that the warp drive has been operational for at least an hour, but reluctantly states because he was only supposed to observe Cisco's work and not report on possible stalling or sabotage. Hmm, perhaps they should check on that. No time for safety checks, declares the first, as he orders his men to engage warp towards the closest base. Well, at least Cisco will have company in whatever afterlife a warp core breach will send them. Dax senses something is wrong and sends the Rubicon into action, and much like a mosquito is to a rhino. If mosquitoes fired photon torpedoes, Dax O'Brien and Bashir provide the necessary diversion for Cisco, Worf, Kira, and Nog to overpower the wildly bewildered Jem'Hadar before they can engage the warp drive. Oh yeah, to which Cisco orders Kira to cancel that virus. After subduing the remaining Jem'Hadar by flooding the rest of the Defiant with anesthesine gas, Cisco watches over Extanorex as he spits his last non-victorious breath at Cisco. But all's well that ends, well, sort of well as the Lilliputian-sized Dax blows a teeny tiny kiss at Worf. And after returning the Rubicon and her crew to normal size, back on Deep Space Nine and inside Quarks, Worf not only proves that he's not a poet, but quite the romantic, as Dax realizes that Worf's commencement poem was just a small token of affection for the safe enlargement of his now normal-sized Parmakai. And just to knock down a very chuffed O'Brien and Bashir's ego an inch or two, as they regale Mpella and mourn of their smaller-than-life heroics, Odo walks by them and remarks that a changeling can't help but size them up in a manner of speaking, which sends the two of them nervously racing to the infirmary. Odo sidles up to Quark as he snorts the constable, and they say you don't have a sense of humor. The end. Nicely done on the recap, Norman. But but I, I couldn't get away from something. Can I just... I need to ask you just one question. Mm. Are you small? Am I small? Are you small? Because look, uh, look, uh, my, you know, I'm going to have to pull you out from where you are and uh, we're going to have to measure you and see if you're small. And you know, you know what the test is. You know, I got a little, uh, little tiny balloon. Mm -hmm. If you can fit inside it, we know that you're small. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. A little, uh, Little Steve Martin throwback there for yeah. uh, for folks who uh, you know see that was me when I was a kid in uh, in like elementary school I would just memorize Steve Martin routines and do those for show and tell as one does so you're welcome you're yeah, welcome very good hey so look I, I know that we're gonna have a lot of opinions back and forth here a lot of uh, critiques and some praise in here I, right at the top right in the teaser section I get what they think they're doing at the opening with Kira laughing. 
but it's not good to me. You may feel differently, uh, but I feel like whenever Star Trek is telling you that this is the laugh track, <laughs> then then we we know that we have a problem ahead. Uh, I, I almost you, wanted to see like Ron Burgundy and he'd say, "Ha ha ha, we are laughing." <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, we've talked about it for many, many times how sometimes Star Trek really nails the humor quite well because the humor comes right out of the character. It's a natural situation. But when they try to tell a joke, it just doesn't feel natural. So that one yeah, it didn't really land with me very well. You know what I think it was in that scene, John? And I, I watched that over and over as to why Kira was laughing. And I don't think really like mm-hmm. Nana had a springboard into the guffaw right that that was supposed to be whatever she exchanged with like nog and then cisco like she had to start laughing but there wasn't actually anything funny that was being done yeah exactly you know yeah we we don't have like there's no visual aid to see like this is the size that o'brien and dax and Worf will be there's none of that yeah like if Worf said something like and like i said i love it when Worf does these one-liners and he mm-hmm. said something like, you know, there's nothing small about this situation. You know, then <laughs> right. she starts yes. cracking up because we would start cracking up the audience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and and speaking of Worf, though, and in, in, in those moments, like I love the little interplay with Nog and even uh Cisco using that line from Casablanca, start of a beautiful friendship. Sure. Like that that's fine. That that all was fine. Yeah. But the laugh felt incredibly forced. You know, I thought was interesting though. As the Rubicon was flying into the vortex, there are three people on the ship, on the Rubicon, Mm -hmm. and there are three, I guess it would be some type of star or gaseous anomalies in the Rubicon. And I just said, you know what? Star Trek likes their threes. They do. I hate, you know, it's a good thing there weren't 47 stars in that uh, anomaly because, you know, you have to send in 47 uh, crew members. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. but it just kind of got me to that whole thing with yeah. cause and effect, you know, with the threes yeah. and data's pips and all and the the cards and the tapping of the fingers. I just yep. I don't know. It just kind yep. of like brought me back to that. I'm gonna say that one time, John, and one time only. Okay. This right. can be this can be played out to death in an episode like this, but size does matter. <laughs> That's all I have to say. That's all Good. I have to say. Well done. And everybody who just got that, that you can use as your ringtone. You so uh, yeah. <laughs> so when Bashir tells the chief that he'd be half the size of a com badge, mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Did anyone else out there want to just break out their action figures and start? No, no, just, I, just me. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe just you, but no. Okay, look, the the thought did uh, cross my mind. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was cute. It's like, yes, they're the size yes. of action figures. Oh my god, I gotta go get my action figures right now. Um, also, when the Defiant goes in for repairs, they might want to actually check that navigation console because it took out two crew members in the span of oh, like a minute. God, it took yeah, out the right. and it took out Kira. I'm like, hey, yeah, never go next to uh, uh, an exploding, a previously exploded panel. I'm just right. Saying. Yeah, boy, that's a good point. Or you know, put up some dividers, just so it, w- whatever, keep people separated, and yeah. Yeah, just, not, you know. not good. By the way, here's a, a weird little thing that got introduced a while back, and we pointed it out then. I really like the idea of the Dominion ships, you know, the Jim Hadar ships, and you got some Vorta in there every now and then, using those little, like, augmented reality viewers, you know, have the little um, the eyepiece, and we made a big deal about, uh, about how uh, Cisco got a headache from it, so Garrick wore it instead. And it's a cool conceit. It, it's almost like... You know, submarine warfare, you don't have windows, so you're using other monitors and sensors to get an idea of what's around you. So I love that. I love that idea. But we really need to decide how they're going to be used. Because in the first scene with Gelnon, the, the Vorta, he's kind of using it. But he's also looking straight at the camera in some kind of a display while talking to the no. Jim Hadar. It just it's like none of that adds up. It doesn't make sense. 
it's like he was caught doing something else. And he's like, oh, oh, wait, oh, excuse me. Sorry. I was just playing with my goals. No, we didn't see you playing with your action figures. You're right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It, it's like, it's a cool conceit. And I guess even, you know, in 1998, you're trying to figure out, well, how would this work in reality? But then you also have the production reality. We have to see a face and they have to be having some sort of interpersonal contact here to sell the scene. It it just like okay, it's one or the other guys. You you gotta you gotta figure this out. And, and speaking of our Dominion chaps here, I really did like just get these chairs out of here. Perfect symmetry to you know you, you've got in the ship, you, you've got Cisco and crew taking over a Dominion ship, and like, can we please just add some chairs? <laughs> you know, very nice Good stuff. And, and I thought, what an interesting. We'll probably come back to this. What an interesting concept to have. Jem Hadar, who don't like each other because of the way they were bred. And mm -hmm. uh, gosh, I really look forward to how this plays out down the road in multiple episodes of DS9. Yeah, I like that there was like this um, this pigment difference between the two, between the mm -hmm. alphas, like slightly beiger, and the, the gamma was slightly grayer and a little bit more scaled. I like how it lends yeah. itself to almost kind of like that absurdity of racism between Bele and Lokai. Right. Right, right. And it is like a little bit of like slight difference in the ridges. Like mm -hmm. it was really well done. Yeah. 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 I really like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I know this is a throwaway scene and it, this is a kind of actual real comedic uh, play for laughs here. But when yeah. the, they built up that entire scene where the Rubicon's like, you know, escaping the plasma vent and it ramming speed bursts through that giant <laughs> door. And it was just a little yeah. shoeboxy door. Like, Oh, yeah. the vent, you know, the, the, the plasma vent just kind of burst open. You know, an engineer would be like, damn it, didn't somebody like just kind of lock that off? Why didn't you do that? Yeah. But it, was, it just it just really kind of burst the bubble of all that tension. And I was like, you know what? That's good comedy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was it was a good moment to have the the change of scale there. And uh, although uh, funny to me that like that was some incredibly slow moving plasma behind them, <laughs> you yeah. know, right. took quite a while to get there. And then. When it does burst out into the engine room, like, it, is that a thing? Like, you can just have hot plasma leaking a, a, along the floorboards of the engineering room? Like, it, that's okay? That's a thing that they expect will happen? Because it seems like, oh, man, this is a serious problem. We need to evacuate engineering right away. I would say that if there's something that I've found consistent about Deep Space Nine in the last few episodes that we've covered, mm -hmm. it's about these weird panels opening up in the strangest of places. Like when Cork and Rom burst through. Yes. Like, yes. Right. Exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, I will say this for the episode, just the, the cutest little runabout in there. Who's, who's an adorable tiny spaceship. You are Rubicon. Yes, you are Rubicon. I'll tell you what, it did inspire uh, me to uh, possibly purchase an Eagle Moss runabout. <laughs> I'm just saying, ah, there you go. I'm just saying. You're I hear you. Eagle Moss. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it was strange, though, speaking of the runabout, I thought it was strange that, you know, Dax was making this concerted effort to have the chief focus on either the uh, external sensors or the blast shields on the Rubicon's windows. But why wouldn't the Rubicon have a detailed schematic of the Defiance in its computer base so that they were just like, okay, just link the schematics to the navigational system and let the Rubicon pilot it automatically? Yes, that mm, see that makes a lot of sense. I like that. I know, yeah. but I would ruin the fun of the episode. That's me, uh, Mister <laughs> Fun Ruining Episode Guy. <laughs> Another Fun Ruining Episode Guy moment for me. Yes. Why wouldn't the chief and Doctor Bashir put on environmental suits before they went into an environment that had no oxygen? Because we yes. saw that in the ascent, right? There were two. Yeah. That that Odo and and uh, Quark had to argue about because one was destroyed and they had to use the other one. So there was obviously standard issue environment suits in a runabout for them to use. Yes. I guess you need to be on a mountain to do that. <laughs> See, that would have been ideal or maybe some sort of a uh, glowing yellow force field that you can put around yourself, you know, activated by a belt, something like that. Shut up with that <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> I, look, all right. Speaking of nonsense, it, right. is there, uh, I, I don't know where this conversation is going to go. I don't know where our show is going to go. We, we never do. Uh, most of this is improvised. Is there any point in talking about miniaturization and how it is handled here? I, I mean, so I like 
that they at least tried to work in some realistic dialogue, like talking about the space inside the atoms shrinking. Mm-hmm. Because that's always a question like, okay, you know, most atoms are empty space. Uh, you, you got protons and electrons and neutrons, but between them, it's just tons and tons of empty space. So you could theoretically shrink that down. They addressed the problem with the oxygen molecules, which I thought was kind of, a, you know, at least they're thinking ahead a little bit. But I found myself thinking, you know, all this discussion actually hurt my suspension of disbelief. And maybe it is because of a, uh, maybe it is because of watching a movie like Fantastic Voyage. You just sort of buy the premise and then we're really just worried that they're going to get eaten by white blood cells. Right. <laughs> but right. maybe too much explanation here kind of hurt that because then you just kept thinking, okay, but, but we'll wait if they touch this, if they spend too long here, if this, how are they actually existing in this environment? How does the ship fly? So much that just I felt like wasn't going to add up no matter what. Dude, you got to embrace your inner space fandom, dude. I know. Uh, yeah. See, there you go. There's <laughs> another one. There's another one with the great Robert Picardo. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I get what you're saying. And I think that that's just something that we're just going to have to just accept, I guess, as a contrivance for this episode. Yeah. Or we could get, I don't know, Dr. Una McCormick on the line and you know, she can educate you on that or educate me. Okay. Uh, Very we'll good. We'll see. I love it. Uh, if the Rubicon was able to co- like gun down the Jem'Hadar with photon torpedoes, then why didn't they the entire time? You know, I, like I get it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. They don't want to like, they don't want to uh, you know, play all their cards all at once. But it, when, when something like that happens, then they, they, they could do that the entire time. And they, if they had the element of surprise, they could have just fired what five or six photon torpedoes and neutralized the Jem'Hadar. I was just hoping that because the photon torpedoes were miniaturized, that means their power output would also have been miniaturized. And then they, sh- they like fire the photon torpedoes at the first Jem'Hadar and it just kind of like bounces off them. Yeah. <laughs> and the Jem'Hadar's like, what the heck just happened? What was that? You know, right, it's like, what right, happened? right. Did somebody yeah. try to drop a cigarette on me or something. But I mean, yeah. you know, a photon torpedo will take out an entire ship sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes several, but uh, you would think here, you know, the Jim Hadar aren't necessarily walking around with shields on, uh, on the, uh, on their persons. So yeah, you'd think like a photon torpedo could take one or two out completely, but maybe not. At least given the right hit. Yeah. It was just one of those things. Um, yeah. you know, it's like, if they could do it then at the mm-hmm. end of the episode, they could have done it earlier, but at any know, point, then, yeah. then we wouldn't have as much fun. Right. Um, right. And I love ruining fun in episodes. No, I do. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? Speaking of fun, it's like too bad Nog uh, didn't try 16309 as one of the codes. And j- I just, was, to, just to fail, right? Oh, I, I was so waiting for that to, to pop up. But it, yeah, just yeah. one of those things. I, you know, that's, that's some serious inside baseball for Star Trek fans. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But it, I felt like it needed to be there. Um, hey, did you feel uh, because the, the ending, they go to a few different places at the ending. We do get a joke there. But do you feel a little cheated at the end? Like it was another one of those TV moments where they, they might as well have just said like, and then we solved all the problems and we were okay again. Like that was, that, that's kind of how it ended. Yeah, well, it's very Star Trekky, you know, when it that kind of happens. And, and, and I thought it would have been it was fun that that Odo kind of trolled them about that. Yes. But he could have done it like so much better because he could have just yeah, he could have just changelinged himself like a couple inches taller. Oh, that would have been fun. Right. Right. And they'd be yes. like, wait, Odo's right. Odo is taller. What is going on? Right. And then that's where that then he would just reduce himself in height. And ooh, then ooh. and then, you know, Quark would be like, yeah, that was funny. I, I do that, or uh, better yet, Odo could push the joke even further, and he could just like keep showing up as a chair that's just like a little bit too big, or you know, <laughs> or he's, a, he's a bar glass that's just a little bit too big. Exactly. <laughs> the whole time. Wait, wait, why? Why is this not fitting right? Oh, that would have been opportunity. You can call it the Rubicon, but don't call it tiny. Hey, we will get back to one little ship in just a moment. But first, a word from our friends over at the Pod Directive Podcast. What? You may know them as comedians and you may know them as actors. 
but they are comedians and actors and Star Trek superfans. Paul F. Tompkins and Tawny Newsom are back for season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. I, I like that. So I, I like them both as actors and as comedians. I, I wonder what we have to do to get known as Star Trek super fans as well. But uh, but I like that. I like that they're wearing that mantle well. Mm-hmm. So look, here's what you do. You check out Pod Directive, the official CBS Star Trek podcast. And this season, you get to journey even further behind the scenes with Tawny and Paul as they explore the power of Star Trek's influence on our lives. They have guests, guests like crazy from Trek icons and luminaries, uh, from Michelle Yeoh to Star Trek Lower Decks, Jack Quaid, even more guests that uh, you'll have to hear to believe, all sharing one thing that they have in common, that would be their love for Star Trek. So episodes vary from hilariously funny interviews to first memories with Trek to incredibly deep and introspective conversations about society, family, and values, and always focusing on the importance of Star Trek and its amazing impact on the world. And look, Norman, I I said it last week, I'll say it again. Pretty sure, pretty sure that Paul F. Tompkins is the second best dressed man in podcasting. You just have to get us both in a room together and find out if that's true. Cue gangsters of Triskelion music when that happens. (laughs) So run, don't walk to your nearest podcast catcher and listen now to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Live long and podcast. All right, Norman, here we are with one little ship. That little ship being the Rubicon. And, and I feel like we might uh, might have some points to critique in this episode, but uh, let's point out a few of the good ones right up front. I love the teamwork with Cisco, Worf, Kira, and Nog in engineering. It's something that we've just sort of come to expect. And DS9 doesn't always show that. You know, I, I think we've spent a lot of time, especially recently, with sort of complicated conversations, particularly in an episode like Waltz with, uh, uh, you know, Cisco and uh, Dukat, where we spend a lot of time with this like introspective and psychological conversation. But here we get to see the team working. And it's really nice to see because we haven't gotten a lot of it lately. It's the perfect expression of the type of command trust that they have, which is the polar opposite of the Jem'Hadar. Cisco and team, they know each other, they trust each other, and they can work to a common goal. I'm pretty sure that I will come back to this at the end of our show, but I just it, it struck me right away that that was cool. Well, the first thing that was really impressive about right after the Jem'Hadar took the ship is that Cisco rallied like all of them together for a common cause. Worf was berating himself for not anticipating the Jem'Hadar attacking the ship. And Mm -hmm. I know that if you actually follow that line of logic, maybe he was blaming himself because he was thinking too much about Dax, too much about the poem and not about his job. I can see Worf doing that. But Cisco's like, that doesn't matter. That's all in the past. What matters right now is how are we going to retake the ship? So let's all focus. Let's all pull together. Let's all be Starfleet officers and get the job done. And then you see that executed in that scene. And I love that because Cisco's like, okay, I'm going to run point as captain and everyone's going to follow my orders. Like the quarterback does to a football team. Yeah. And they just follow suit. They follow his lead. And that is in direct opposition to the, the first of the Jem Hadar and always being kind of countermanded and second guessed by his far more experienced second. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it is interesting. You know, the Jem Hadar gives so much lip service saying like, like they just, they follow orders and that's the way to victory and victory is life. Like that, that's it. But without an understanding of really the goal and its impact, I think you just open yourself up as the Jem Hadar do for all this infighting, even though they say that they, they are structured and they respect the command chain. Uh, it doesn't necessarily play out that way. I think we're seeing a little, maybe a break in the chain there for the Jem Hadar. It's something that I think could be exploited, as I love seeing Cisco try to do in this episode. I, I thought those moments were really strong. You know, I mean, Cisco. Cisco has observed the Jem Hadar at their best and the Jem Hadar at their worst, and even the Jem Hadar in that neutral space of working with the Federation in some of those episodes, and he knows exactly 
at least a gamma quadrant Jem'Hadar, he knows exactly how they're wired, you know, yeah. and how they follow a certain level or a certain code of honor. Yeah. And he can see that at play here. And he knows if he pushes those buttons just enough, you know, yeah. he can actually create his opening. And he did. Right. 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 I also, I really appreciate in this episode, the introduction of this fracture, which we mentioned in the uh, last segment between the alpha and gamma Jem'Hadar. It's a little convoluted at first trying to understand, you know, if you, you really try to play the home game here and, you know, figure out the time frame and who came from where, but it's an interesting conceit. And again, it reveals this flaw in the way that the Jim Hadar are created and the way they're put to work by the Dominion. So it, it's, you know, I, I keep thinking that the bigger and more powerful the Dominion get and completely dedicated to their, you know, their rule, their power, uh, their total domination of what's around them, that it does reveal this like inherent flaw in what they do. It's almost Borg-like. We're just going to create the machine to do the job we want it to do, but its well-being, its function outside of that doesn't even matter. We're not even going to give much thought to that at all. And actually, they, they have this sort of bigotry in their code because the functions of their codes are different. Mm -hmm. Like I, that's what I thought was so interesting as an idea to explore here. There's no room for learning about or learning from those differences. All of it played incredibly well by the actors here. I, I just thought, you know, each time we get Jem Hadar in DS9, you know, the backdrop is that they are fearsome warriors. They are there to kill and follow orders, but they've done such a good job of actually giving depth to these characters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's no shortage of that here. Now, I say all of that, and of course, I joked about it in the last segment because I'm really disappointed that this is the only exploration we're going to get of that. Sorry for the spoiler, Norman, but you know, that that's all we get out of this divide between Alpha and Gamma uh, Gem Hadar. But what an interesting thing to explore. It's just a shame that we don't get more of that. Well, yeah, the bigotry that you're that you're mentioning, it's something that I didn't expect to see in Deep Space Nine. It was it was interesting that they chose to add, say, the the gamma veteran of 20 years into this this whole different cadre of uh, of newly recruited or newly bred Jem Hadar in the Alpha Quadrant because it's kind of like why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just keep that that you know that platoon pure? Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I found that dynamic really interesting and refreshing because there's kind of a real world correlation between say modern youth like you know the, the cocky brash dismissive of their elders type of soldiers in this case uh, who rely on their strength and their the what do they say the arrogance of youth to get them through yeah. these types of missions instead of say like the the wizened old veterans that use experience and yeah. you know uh, the knowledge of previous battles to get them through and, and to keep them alive. So, and, yeah. and see, and, and again, that really illustrates the difference between their structure versus our Defiant slash DS Nine crew, mm -hmm. where everybody has something to contribute, even Nog has something to contribute. He's the low man on the totem pole, but he's there for a reason because he brings something to the team. And as you see them all work together, they all have a strength that they can contribute. And for the Jim Hadar, that's just completely a foreign concept. Yeah, it's yeah. like that trope that you see in like war movies where you have like this this brand new fresh academy graduate and he's in charge of a bunch of people but then you have I'm I'm specifically talking Heartbreak Ridge just to put everything into context because you had this again this academy graduate and he is going to go into battle and his you know his uh, gunnery sergeants are like hey look I've been around I fought in three wars <laughs> You know, so why don't you just kind of slow your roll a little bit and, you know, yeah. take a page from our book. You might save some lives here. He's like, nope, I have been trained by the best. I'm younger. I'm smarter. I know more because I've been trained with modern techniques and modern right. theses and modern this and modern that. And you're just an old relic. And he's like, okay, all right. We'll see yeah. how that goes. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and look, I, I know that I, uh, I brought it up, but I, I just do want to talk a little bit more here about the idea of miniaturization. And, and maybe, maybe, Norman, you will find a, uh, a deep discussion point in this. But, <laughs> you know, I, I really feel like, the, the, you know, when, when Star Trek does something that is really off the wall, like a miniaturization episode, as we have here. Um, I'm really hoping that what we're doing is exploring something a little deeper. And we're using that metaphor, we're using that science fiction trope to actually get at something bigger. I don't necessarily <laughs> something think bigger. Ah, how dare boo. you? How dare I know. You, I oh, oh, I just it is the fun ever start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in this case, so we have miniaturization, and I just I see it obviously is a classic sci-fi trope. You know, we mentioned all, you know, Incredible Shrinking Man. I think that was really one of the first, you know, Hollywood attempts to tell that kind of story. Um, and it is full of, you know, metaphor. And, and certainly you look at a movie like uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, if we want to take it the opposite way. And that is a movie that just is a psychological field day right there. <laughs> and then you just have cool adventure stories like Irwin Allen's Land of the Giants, which is just great in its own way. There, there's so many stories like this in sci-fi. In fact, you know, one of our contributors in Discord pointed out how great Fantastic Voyage is, and I completely agree. That is a brilliant movie, and I love it. And you're buying that world because from the beginning, it feels fully realized. Like, it is just our world, and they have figured out how to do this one thing. For some reason, though, even on Star Trek, where we have this suspension of disbelief about all this other technology, all the other things that happen in this universe, this just feels like a gimmick. And it feels like a gimmick that got plugged in because they ran out of other ideas. And uh, that's that makes this episode harder to swallow. Now, I get the idea of lightening things up from time to time, um, but I feel like you also have to do that with character. Um, I, I get the need to do something that is high action and, uh, maybe a special effects showpiece, which this certainly is, but you have to have a payoff and, and not totally break that suspension of disbelief. So Norman, help me out here. Are, are we finding maybe a deep thought behind all of the special effects, razzle dazzle and the reemergence of a sci-fi trope? Well, I mean, I don't really have a problem so much with a sci-fi trope as it is explored here, I think the issue is, is that when you take a look at, say, the last four or five episodes and, you know, one of our Patreon listeners wrote this into one of our notes, it's just mm -hmm. this, this sine wave of highs and lows of high drama or comedy. And it really plays with your expectation of trying to get and establish some type of narrative dynamic momentum with the series, because there is a really nice serialization that's going on here with mm -hmm. episode to episode to episode, even at the beginning, you know, Cisco caveats that we're still at war, but we're going to explore something interesting. So you know that the war is continuing, but they drop in this story and this really kind of farcical idea of miniaturization. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, I don't, I mean, I love it, but why is it here? You know, why right. is it in this particular string of episodes? But again, you got, you know, the magnificent Ferengi, then you get Waltz, then you get who mourns for Morn, then, you know, then you get far beyond the stars and then you get <laughs> yeah. this. And it's like, yeah. it's, there's nothing really in between. It's either high drama or their attempt at high comedy. And it's really hard to navigate where your expectations are emotionally as a viewer because it's not really building anything when you when you take people out of that cycle of expectation whether it's drama or comedy i mean if they put two dramas together or two comedies together maybe that would have been fine yeah but for here i i, I love a good cheesy kind of sci-fi trope and <laughs> well, I you think, live you love your rubber yeah, monsters you know i do and, and, i do yeah and, and i i get that and and i think you know uh to what you were saying about this this uh, ebb and flow of DS9, like when they've hit drama, they've hit drama incredibly well, far beyond the stars, Waltz, just two great recent examples, and they've hit comedy really well. Not that Magnificent Ferengi is a straight up comedy, but it definitely has lighter elements. Who Mourns for Mourn, pretty much a heist comedy, you know, right. but done very well. 
And mm-hmm. this, it just feels like they didn't know the direction, you know? I, I do feel like we're getting ahead a, a little bit, but that's okay because I feel like that is the kind of conversation that this episode is going to elicit no matter what. Yeah, I have a question for, for you and for all of mm-hmm. our listeners out there. Do you think that any episode really would have been able to stand up to being kind of like the, the episode that follows up far beyond the stars? Yeah, you know, that that's tough. And I think that whatever you do, you have to, you almost have to give Cisco the week off. You mm-hmm. almost have to focus on somebody else and you can lighten it up a little bit, but you need to decompress after an episode like Far Beyond the Stars. And yeah, maybe this I, episode would have served maybe a little bit better if, say, Cisco was knocked out like during that during the bridge uh, assault and he was at that comm panel and he was knocked out for the episode and he was in sickbay and just kind of, you know, in a comatose state and let the rest of the team handle it. Because I think that that probably would have worked maybe a little bit better because it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's not so much focused on him since the episode prior was all about Cisco and the most dramatic and the most incredibly story told way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I, it, it. No matter what, it would be hard. I, you know, if, if that's your opening act, far beyond the stars, how can you possibly follow that up? Yeah, yeah. But there, there are other episodes that maybe could have, or simple fixes like, well, maybe you just don't focus as much on Cisco because he's really been through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I really liked the whole Chief and Bashir relationship when they were in that sub processor. Because where the chief kind of gets hung up on being this perfectionist engineer, he knows everything from the, you know, the, all these different numbers of all these different circuits and where they're all plugged in or where they're all, you know, organized in his brain. But when he sees it from that perspective, it just, pardon the pun, it short circuits him Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And I love that the entire time, if you really, really pay attention to some of the dialogue in the runabout, Bashir is just at a loss when they're teching the tech. Like Bashir is like, can somebody please tell me what's going on? <laughs> right. But at the most important yeah. point, when the chief really needs to focus, Bashir just says, close your eyes, trust yourself, believe in yeah. your ability, and you can do it. It's just that, that moment where you know what? He doesn't have all the technical knowledge. He doesn't have all of that engineering expertise, but what he does know how to do is he knows how to focus on the one problem. That's what doctors do. Doctors focus on one specific task at one specific time, because otherwise everything else cascades into failure if they don't fix a bleeder or something Mm. that goes completely south. So I like that. He just, you know what? What would I do as his friend and as his doctor to advise him at this point? And I thought that was really well done. Uh, you know, I agree with you. It's a good moment in what would otherwise come across as completely absurd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so hats off to the actors there for actually giving a moment that could feel absurd some uh, uh, some character uh, groundedness, I guess. Yeah. One last thing that I wanted to talk about, though, about the Jem Hadar. And we didn't mention this in our observations, but I found this very interesting that the alphas are so untraditional as Jem'Hadar that they don't even do the white ceremony in the same particular way to pay honor to the founders. Yes. And that speaks volumes of what could have happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that I feel like this is such a a missed opportunity here going forward because you know we talked about our disappointment in the Deus Ex Machina of basically wiping out the Jem'Hadar threat at that very moment in the wormhole um, in Sacrifice of Angels that we kept thinking, okay, but what would actually be a plan going forward? What would actually be uh, a weakness to exploit and have our team, whether it's locally on DS9 or speaking bigger Starfleet or the Federation, how can they actually figure their way out of the problem? And I felt like we got such a good hint of that with Cisco just noticing, ah, here is a weakness. And here are all the other details, like the ceremony with the white, here are all the other details that can add up to 
actually give us an advantage. Yeah, and the the uh, scene where the the first is conspiring with that, I guess it was the sixth, and yeah. like, you know, sooner or later we're just going to wipe out all the gammas because they're inferior, and I need a new second. I'm like, okay, yes. here we go. There's yes. something to sink our teeth into. That's very interesting. Right, right. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait for season eight. <laughs> Warning, choking hazard due to small ships. Keep out of the reach of those pesky young Alpha Quadrant Jem'Hadar. What a big episode, John. It's a, it's a shame that we have to wrap it up in such a small amount of time. But maybe if we play our cards right and if we worked our way back to the beginning of the episode, then we'll have more time to talk about it and less time. Now forget it. Forget that. Forget it. I don't understand the miniaturization thing. And I know that you have a bone to pick with it, but yeah. does that does that come into play with the morals, meanings, and messages? And if you think this episode withstands the test of time. So look, I, I may disappoint some listeners. I may be right on the page, right on the same page with other listeners um, when I, uh, I just have to honestly say, this is not hold up for me. Uh, but that's what our show is all about, about having a discussion, different opinions. Now, I will say this. I want to give this show credit where I feel like it is definitely due. I talked about how CG was first being used extensively in DS9 at the beginning of season six. And here we have a lot of effect shots throughout. It is difficult and expensive work and they went all out here where they could. So as an effect showpiece, fantastic. You're also talking about a show that was produced before we were really using virtual sets. So like any other story of people shrinking, the large-scale props and sets had to be physically built. And they did a really good job of that here too. Our Jem'Hadar are excellent. I, I think that's such an interesting story uh, line to, to start to follow. I wish we got more of it, uh, but the the actors are wonderful in it, and it, they were given good material. I feel like our Vorta here, not so much. But when you're preceded by Jeffrey Combs and Christopher Shea and Iggy Pop, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're going to lose. <laughs> you know, there, There's really not many actors who could follow up those three, and you go, wow, that's my new favorite Vorta. No, sorry. No small feet there. No small. Oh, oh, <laughs> you're on fire, Norman. I honestly, I could see this story being done on TOS, but even then, I, I think probably would have been handled better for my enjoyment of it because maybe it was handled better when you go to TAS, the animated series, yes, with the Terraton incident. And thank you for that call out earlier, Norman. Uh, the problem with this episode for me is why. Why are we telling the story? Why now when we've had such a good run of strong episodes? Is it season fatigue uh, that we've hit the middle and we've run out of good ideas before going to the holiday break so that this is what we get when we're back in the new year? This is also where Star Trek doesn't really do well with humor. They didn't find that right balance. I know that was the purpose of having Kira laugh at the beginning to sort of lighten it up for all of us, but I felt like that undermined the show. It's a real shame that this came after Far Beyond the Stars because maybe my perception of it would have been different. But as I said before, what can possibly come after Far Beyond the Stars? That maybe should have been the series ender as far as I'm concerned. How about you, Norman? Set me straight. How do you feel? That's so funny. I didn't read these notes ahead of time and we kind of discussed this. This mm -hmm. is like, I think John and I are, are entering that stage in like our newlywed game uh, preparation <laughs> where we're starting to <laughs> anticipate each other's uh, uh, sentences or responses. But I don't think you'll get this one, John. I don't think you'll see this okay. one coming from me. I okay. love this episode. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love this then, episode. Then I, see, th this is what I love. I, I love it when I'm faced with a different opinion. Where clearly, we've both studied an episode because then I, I want to gain perspective out of that different opinion. Tell me why you love it. Well, I understand what you're saying with the, the situation with Kira at the beginning. And I understand that this isn't probably the best 
timing for this episode, especially, again, following up far beyond the stars. But when I look at the structure of the episode, I still love that it falls in line with continuity because we're still in the Dominion War. So even though it's a misplaced timed episode, it still falls in line with the overall narrative. So I thought that was smart of them to do. Uh, I love that uh, even though that there's this threat of the, the Jem'Hadar always kind of like encroaching on their space, that they do have a little bit of a break from the war and they have this opportunity to explore. They're still explorers at heart. You know, they're still Starfleet. And I think that's nice that they were able to tap into that. And it's smart that they went on the Define in case they ran into trouble, which they did. But I mm-hmm. like that that exploratory spirit is still alive and well when they're looking at this anomaly for scientific purposes. And even though it may be juvenile or obvious, I still think this episode is a lot of fun to watch. I love that the Rubicon is this little bitty eagle moss sized ship. It's an adorable little shuttle. It is. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to order one. I'm going to have to order one <laughs> uh, to play with more of my action figures. But yes. that, maybe that was just me. But I love it because it you use that as a cursor to move the plot forward. Literally, like you put it in front of the door and wait for the door to open so you can move the ship into the next mm-hmm. scene or into mm-hmm. the next sequence of scenes. So I thought that was a lot of fun. I love the production work in this episode. Because, and especially in the subprocessor, I thought that was marvelous because yeah. I didn't really see a lot of reused or recycled materials in there, especially those giant conduit, uh, I guess they would be tubes that they had to plug in and out. And I thought it was yeah. smart that the chief uh, soldered that with his phaser. That yes. was super yes. smart to see. Right. I, it, you know, this episode just kind of worked for me. And here's one of the main reasons why. And I know that I give Worf a hard time. We both do. It, it look as well deserved. Right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. But in this case, in this episode, this is where Worf hits all of the right notes for me because, you know, he had this whole thing about, you know, possibly blaming himself for not anticipating the Jem'Hadar attack and take that arc all the way to the end where he has that romantic moment with Dax and he doesn't write the poem and puts a smile on her face because he just made up that joke at the time. I loved that. I thought that yeah. that was something that we should have seen peppered throughout this entire relationship and, and not that whole, you know, let he who is without sin episode even matter <laughs> anymore. I mean, it would have been nice to if we just saw glimpses of, of, of this dynamic throughout the course of, you know, these last few seasons. I thought that was perfect between the two of them. Yeah. And honestly, if I had to make a recommendation, I think I would recommend this to just, hey, you know what? This is a fun, lighthearted episode of Star Trek where you don't really need to do a lot of homework to watch. You can just kind of watch it because you understand the trope, a fantastic voyage or inner space, or you know, shrinking down a ship to you know, minuscule size so that they can fight off a virus in the body. That's just old school science fiction. And you're right to say that I still love rubber monster style science fiction. <laughs> and you don't really just have to prep a lot of Academy style reading to watch it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. Hey, look, I see that's exactly what I wanted. I want to know why you love this episode where I didn't. And that is the fun of what we do on Mission Log. So now look, let's talk about messages, morals, meanings here. Um, to me, I just no. I, I I'm not getting morals, meanings, messages. There's no like you see Timmy moment in this for me. But but if I do want to take a serious look at something here, I'm gonna go back to what really intrigued me before, and that is the difference in command style. And maybe we're biased because we are, because we've already seen Cisco and his crew work and grow together. What we see is their unspoken and implicit trust in each other. The Jem'Hadar are the exact opposite. They follow orders even if they're bad ones. And nobody trusts the other, even though they all say that they're dedicated to the same cause. And that cause is purely this nebulous idea of victory. It's a victory without a purpose. There's absolutely no vision behind what they do, why they're there, other than to just serve. It's fascinating. And they, they become these, you know, automatons within this machine of the Dominion. And that to me is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is so interesting. And, and again, you know, I'll, I'll just say kind of that lost opportunity about using Deus Ex Machina before. I know we have a lot more of this show to go still, a full season and a half. But to me, this is the most interesting difference in Starfleet's approach to a problem versus the Dominion's approach to a problem. 
and we got to see that in full display here. Uh, how about you, Norman? Any morals, meanings, messages to pick up? Well, I mean, I love the fact that we keep focusing on this this trust that uh, Cisco and his crew have built over time. And one of my favorite scenes, and it's very, very quick, but it's just when Cisco smiles at Kira and says, I'll bet on you every time. Ah, uh, yeah. It's right. such a right. nice yeah. bit of acting. Very subtle, but speaks volumes. And it, it shows you where Cisco's headspace is, this entire, you know, sabotage that he's you know, <laughs> uh, exacting on, on his plans, you know, to take over the ship. You know, you're right. I mean, there's, there isn't really a very deep, if any, moral episode, uh, center to this episode. But if I really, really, really wanted to try and find one, and, and I think that you spoke to this very eloquently, it's the bigotry still between the Alpha and Gamma Jem'Hadar. And much like to uh, Ix Tanarax's point, the, the Alpha first, right, he was... Too cl- he was too quick to declare victory on any front just so that he can show his quality off to his men and to the Vorta, because that's how Jem'Hadar, uh, I guess that's how they uh, succeed and how they, you know, uh, rise in the ranks, you know, of the Jem'Hadar. That's right. all well and good, you know, but when you really look at the overall failure that is this mission, it's that that youthful arrogance and pride that doesn't allow him to do, say, what Cisco was able to do, like you said, and organize his people to be able to work towards a common cause. You know, he doesn't know what uh, being a well-rounded leader is like. And, you know, to the Dominion, they don't use the Jem'Hadar for their diplomacy or the ability to assess the situation or for intelligence. They use them as meat to the grinder. Yeah. You know, they, I mean, there may be some type of uh, hierarchical system, as we have seen from time to time with Jem Hadar, that they really are cannon fodder and yeah. uh, they have their own politics uh, notwithstanding. So I think it would have probably made for far more interesting, maybe a new opponent to Cisco, if you had this alpha quadrant uh, grown Jem Hadar to be a little bit more intelligent, say, strategic in a way, or knew exactly why he was questioning orders, the way that Cisco kind of mined for information in that very, very subtle way. Now imagine this, imagine if say some Jem'Hadar were actually trained by the remnants of the Maquis that were left behind. Whoa. Okay. So now you have an alpha Jem'Hadar who knows and is bred for combat in this quadrant trained by somebody who was as smart as say eddington oh watch out all right now, you, you you just launched a thousand fan fictions that's <laughs> what i do <laughs> mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is at missionlogpodcast.com if you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. There's a lot going on over there these days. We have your early preview episodes. We have uh, Mission Log After Hours, which is our direct feedback chat about episodes when they're new. Uh, we have a Discord that is very active. So check us out at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Honor Among Thieves. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Shabel. If you think about it, what O'Brien and Bashir really needed was a little breather. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.